Welcome to What's Next, the podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. Join your host, Tamira Lechner, as she explores the diverse pathways of entrepreneurial spirits who thrive while working and playing across multiple disciplines. Whether you're firmly established in your career, contemplating a change, or simply seeking inspiration, these conversations with fascinating people will ignite your curiosity and inform your own journey. Tune in to discover how mindset and action plus your own secret sauce can lead to extraordinary personal and professional growth, no matter where life takes you. Welcome to What's Next, a podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. I'm Tamara Lechner, your host, and my nonlinear path has spanned many interests, so rather than listening to them, I think I'll let my history unfold over the course of our time together. One thread that has remained throughout, I follow my curiosity and desire to help people to be their best so they can do their best work, hopefully leaving the world a little better than I found it. But enough about me. My guest for this series is Eric Fraser. Eric and I met on a panel last year. Uh, We were, I believe, speaking about mental well-being at the workplace. And we discovered that we share some interests and some curiosities. So when Eric told me he was making his second major career pivot, I wanted to learn from him because I think he really does this pivot thing well. So I'm going to let him tell you a bit more about where he's been and where he's going. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Tanara. Um, So the two pivots that... um, the big ones in my career is I went from software developer into basically what I'll call, you know, management. Um, and I, I developed an interest in organizational culture and um, industrial and organizational psychology. Um, and then I spent about two and a half years at a culture consulting company but now I've pivoted back more towards technology, but specifically um, artificial intelligence, where I'm, I would call myself uh, a really dedicated student of that field. And hopefully if I keep studying it well enough, then I can reach a level of competency in it. Um, and uh, someday I'll be able to label myself, you know, a true... Uh, valuable advice. Awesome. So I want to go back because I love an origin story. And I know that you started in software. Um, but can you tell me a bit about what you were doing and how you started and, and why that was kind of your first point of entry into a career? Yeah, sure. So um, when I was a young guy, the software revolution was sort of in its like mid-growth phase so it was already obvious to the world that software is going to be super important first programming i did uh well if you count high school it was on actual punch cards but the, the real first real programming i did at a keyboard was on um uh, a system called the vax vms which is a super super old system that was at university but that's that's what was state of the art at the time um so I went into it because I thought, this thing is going to change the world, this thing being the nascent software industry. Um, this was when Oracle was a very small company, by the way. Um, 
So I was interested in it because I wanted to be involved in something big. Maybe that was my ego, frankly, more than um, the desire to help the world. I, I think my personality has changed since then. I actually am more interested in doing something that's socially positive. Um, that's also, by the way, what drew me towards um, culture consulting and organizational culture work because I thought if we can improve the work experiences of thousands and thousands of people by improving the cultures that they have to work in, then that's a good thing. That makes so much sense. And I think that was one of the points of connection for you and I that work can fuel ego, but it can also fuel good humans and good futures. And and I know we share interest in that. So you pivoted from software to culture. What what was it about AI that made you think, okay, I want to double down. I'm, I want to jump right in fully because you've described to me um, that this is a, this is a full stop. You're, you're leaving your current role and maybe I am. Maybe you can tell our audience what what you're doing now, and then we can backfill a little bit. Sure, yeah. So I'm leaving a secure and paid job and basically teaming up with someone um, where both of our incomes will be um, not paid by someone else. It'll just be based on how much consulting we can sell to companies. So it'll be up to us to generate our own income. Um, So that's the... Uh, I guess the risky part of it is that instead of an employer depositing money into my account every half month, um, it'll just depend on, you know, did someone want to buy our consultant? Um, in terms of what made me want to do that, um, in the same way that I felt really uh, fascinated by the power of software way back in the early days when Vax VMS was the, the leaping, you know, um, hardware platform, um, I feel like what I see AI doing, and especially if you combine AI with quantum computing, it is as transformative as something as big as like domesticating plants and, and you know inventing agriculture, figuring out that we can use electricity um, instead of just being killed by it when it rains lightning down from the sky, like figuring that stuff out figuring out that, you know, mechanical leverage can help us move large objects um, that we can't lift with our own muscles, you know, by ourselves. That's the type of transformative effect I think AI can have. Um, and so rather than being purely driven by the ego of, you know, oh, I want to be involved in this big thing, um, I think there's also like this blending of a, a bit of concern that if we don't have any ethical boundaries or framework as we do this work, we might end up with something very, very dysfunctional, socially dysfunctional, where you have a green concentration of power in the hands of, you know, less than a thousand people in the world. Um, I mean, at its most dysfunctional possibility, you get basically, you know, slavery 3.0. So I... I think I would like to spend the rest of my time on this planet um, working to make sure that the adoption of this new technology um, is not just productive and, and helpful to our, our, you know, I guess, economic output, but also is um, cognizant of 
more, I guess, philosophical aspects like um, what does this do to the common good and then what is the common good and um, is it okay to just ignore the experience of someone in a country very far away from you because you will never have to deal with them personally. Yeah, these are, they're big questions. And I share your excitement. And as I was listening to you, I was actually getting that excitement where the hair on the back of my neck stands up because I I agree with you, this is, we're on the edge of something really big. It's a real game changer. And we have the opportunity to get it right. Um, Which is, I think, something I've heard you talk and I've seen your posts on LinkedIn. People who are uh, listening in the audience absolutely follow Eric and I on LinkedIn. We love to to talk AI and all things culture and human. And when I see you there, you're asking really great questions that are prompting people who have opinions or maybe more knowledge about AI to think more deeply. And and I think that's one of the things that really drew me to you. So you're partnering with somebody. I'm interested to know what drew you to that partner that you're working with. Um, three things. Number one, she's a true AI scientist. So she's a data scientist by trade. She just, That's basically been her career for several years. And then she did a, a recent PhD on how AI is applied in business so that gives her the a really good ability to earn a living because businesses you know tend to pay more money for things than non-businesses so the fact that she can tell people you know here's how to apply ai in your business for your own benefit that increases her probability of earning money which is good because i also need to well sorry i'll just say i want to earn money like i don't know if i need it or not i i want to um, I would say you deserve to when you're when you're making a difference in the world. I, I think altruism sometimes goes too far, and we're we're taught that if we're really doing good, then we're not making any money. And I actually think when we make more money, we can do more good. That's that's how it works right now. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I can't change that broad context. So I'm working within it. I, I want to earn money in the world that we live in today. Um, so she's a scientist, and she can earn money. Um, But she also has an ethical core. Um, And she's not what I would call a a maximalist um, on the scale of let's just go full speed ahead. doesn't really matter what the human or social impact is. We just want to maximize the ability of AI. She doesn't have that ethos. She has an ethos that's more like we've got to be able to work out how to combine humans and machine intelligence in a way that's good for humans. Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? When you when you hear about is is this going to be Armageddon or Utopia? It's up to us. It's up to us. So partnering with someone who has that ethos sounds brilliant. If everything over the next few weeks, few months goes really well and you had a magic wand. Who are your clients? What are you doing? And and what's the impact that you're making in the AI space? Um, our clients would be 50% large businesses, meaning um, 
businesses in the Fortune 500. Um, 25% small businesses and 25% government, government and non-profits. So this is my personal preference. I actually haven't discussed those ratios with my future partner. Um, but I think a 50% large businesses means the bills get paid and that we grow the business. Um, the 25% small businesses means that we're propagating knowledge and essentially dampening fear in the small business community, uh, which I think would be a, just a morally good thing to do and a helpful thing to do for small businesses. Um, and then the 25% government and non-profit is to do with making sure that we strengthen the ability of society to regulate and monitor AI. So right now we've got members of Congress who don't know how to work their iPhones, supposedly, you know, drawing up regulation for AI. Um, that's really dangerous. I would love those people to understand a lot more about AI. Um, someone like the scientist that I'm going to partner with, she can help with that. I love that idea. And I will say, so you're, although you sound Australian, you're in the US, we should say that for our audience. And I'm in Canada. Uh, but I think you're referring to the recent Biden government, how they are asking experts to come in and help them make yeah. Yeah. guidelines because they recognize that they don't even have the basic information they need to put up the right guardrails. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes. And I don't have harsh critiques of the paper that they came out with. That's just a good start by people who are just on a learning curve. Like me, I'm also on a learning curve. Um, I guess I might be over-indexing on the, the farcical comedy of, you know, watching, uh, you know, a Senate committee hearing and one of the senators clearly doesn't know how to work their own phone. Um, and the, the sort of shock, the cognitive shock of realizing like that guy is going to write AI regulation and, you know, he's putting people's phone numbers into the calculator on his phone because he doesn't know the difference between the phone and the calculator function. So there is that, but that I, I know that that's not all members of Congress, not all senators. Um, I guess what my point is is that because I know that it's possible to um, give more information to the government about how AI works and to give it from people who have no vested interest in protecting their own companies, then we should do that. But the problem with people like Elon Musk advising the government is that Elon Musk has shown himself to be um, extremely self-interested. So when he says, oh, hey, government, you should do this, it's probably with the motivation of maximizing the value of SpaceX and uh, Tesla. That is the conundrum, right? I And, and so I want to backpedal a bit because I'm imagining there's people in the audience that know far less than you and I, and I'm going to say you're a giant leap ahead of me. And when I first heard AI, so I sit in the organizational psychology, the peak performance world, AI for me had stood for appreciative inquiry, which is another acronym that uses the same letters. And so I think that we need to go really basic and start with a common language to make sure 
that our audience knows what we're talking about, but I also think this is what we're going to have to do when we step into businesses. Because as you said, you've got some people who already know it and are using it daily and other people who are scared and already say they will never use it and it's going to end our our planet as we know it. And then there's other people that don't even really understand what it is. So where can we begin to kind of lay the land for our next few weeks and episodes together so that we can, so you can help me to learn more and together we can help our audience to understand a little bit more about this. Where would, where would we begin with a common language? That's, that's a good idea. I mean, um, if a non AI person was going to ask me, what is AI? Um, and please limit your answer to 10 seconds. I would say, um, it's the software that allows a machine to come up with the same outputs as you would get from human reasoning. So that's that's quite broad, right? Because that could apply to an Excel spreadsheet. Um, but I think there's a helpfulness in it being broad because right now the pendulum has swung in um, too far in, in another direction, which is that people think that AI is just things like ChatGPT. Um, but they should be aware that the thing we should regulate as a society is not just things like ChatGPT. It's also the software that um, is used by hospital chains to figure out what treatment you should get when you go to hospital with a certain set of symptoms. AI is used to do that right now. Or the software that banks use to figure out whether you deserve a home loan in a certain neighborhood. That's also AI and that also should be regulated for bias and um, an error. Well, and that I know is something that we've seen a lot of conversation in the space of people who care about AI development um, because, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that these algorithms are trained on historic information and we know our history is super inaccurate and super biased. And so our very smart models are only as smart as what we feed them. And if we're feeding them our historical biased version of earth, that's what we're going to get back. Is that, is that kind of a basic, but accurate summary? That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, there's human bias and then there's also incomplete data. They're probably the two biggest problems with, um, the, the basic, of how we train AI right now. Yeah, and so that incomplete data, is that what leads to a hallucination? It can, um, but it can also just be an artifact of the fact that we're talking about probabilistic math, not deterministic math. So, for example, um, if you ask ChatGPT, what is 5,208 plus 1? Now, it should answer... 5,209, because even your 20-year-old calculator can do that. But there's actually a small probability that it will get it wrong. Um, Okay. I haven't heard that before. Can you 
explain in Tamara terms. <laughs> I've, I've got to tell you, I've been playing with some of the courses that you've sent me and I feel like my math muscle is getting flexed in a way it hasn't, uh, in many years, which is, is fun, but it's also a little bit daunting. So if anyone out there is like me and, and finds this challenging, I'm going to encourage you just to jump in and keep practicing. So why would the algorithm not be able to add a single number? What in layman terms? Because the style of algorithm it is is different from the wiring in your calculator. So the wiring in your calculator is super reliable at doing exactly that type of operation. Like, what is this number plus that number? Oh, it's this number. Super reliable. Whereas large language models, which is what ChatGPT is, don't actually do that. They what they do is they look at the past, uh, all the history in their training data. And they say, hmm, how has this question been answered before? So instead of just saying, well, obviously just add one to this number, they say, well, what have other people said about this? Now, hopefully the world is smart enough to have added two numbers together correctly. So when it looks at what everyone else has said, it's like, oh, I see everyone else is saying it's 5,209. So I'll say that too. But if someone's given the wrong answer before, there is actually a chance of like that wrong answer. Very small chance. I was having flashback to my school days where you would have the most popular student say an answer and everybody would just pile on and believe it because the student was popular, not because they were right. Um, and so it, I think what you're saying is it's not so much about popular as as the most populous. Yeah, that's that's how hallucinations occur, basically. It's, it's like the computer equivalent of what you are experiencing where, oh, the popular person said this, so I guess... I'll just say that too. Um, now, the computer isn't looking at popularity as much as it is, um, I mean, not human popularity, right? It's, it's looking at how many times does something get said or how many times does A get associated with B. If it's a lot, then I'm just going to say that they're always associated. It's interesting because you're reminding me. So my oldest daughter is applying... Uh, for PhD programs right now. And one of the things that she said to me is, when do we hit the point in our education where we're allowed to have original ideas? Because so far, everything I've done going through my undergrad, going through law school, I've had to cite other people's work. And when do I get to have an original thought? Is there a time where AI will have an original thought? Or is it always regurgitating something that somebody else thought? Um, today, I think that all of our AI right now synthesizes data that it has been trained on. So this can produce what look and feel like original thoughts. Like, for example, you can say, please write me a haiku about the weather in Seattle. Um, and it might write a, a series of words that no one has ever written before. So is that an original thought? Well, it might feel like one. So you might think, oh, it just composed an original haiku. But what it's really doing is it's saying, okay, well, first of all, what is a haiku? So it goes back and looks at the training data and says, oh, okay, got it. I know what a haiku is now. And then it says, okay, Seattle, what, what's the weather like in Seattle? It goes back to its training data. It's like, oh, it's rainy, it's cold, it's gray. All right, so... Now, what words express that and what are the haiku forms that I have to obey? And it's doing all this basically with probabilistic math. So it's not saying this is certainly what 
she wants. It's saying this is most probably what she wants if she's asking for a haiku on Seattle. Whatever. My head, as always, is spinning when I start thinking about this because I start thinking of all of the potentials. And I know the writer world, especially screenwriters, TV writers, copywriters, have been really fearful that AI is going to take their jobs. And I think you and I have had conversations saying AI is not going to take anybody's job. People that don't know how to work with or use this as a tool um, are going to struggle in the future. I, I think we would probably both agree. But I see so much potential in AI getting people past writer's block or getting us past the Hallmark movie style script that has been done 20,000 times. Um, I think, I guess what I'm wondering is the and what else? Because we see these fears from the vocal people. Teachers are one. We've heard a lot from education because teachers, I would say, fearful teachers are trying to detect AI and stop students from using it. And really great teachers are making AI part of the process. So I was talking to one um, AP psych teacher and their first pass at a final paper had to be generated by an AI. So they were now integrating that as part of the student's process. We've seen teachers talking a lot about this. We've seen writers talking a lot about this. We know AI started a lot of detection around self-driving cars. Where else are we seeing people like and and glean on to this and, and talk about it more? Um, in an optimistic way or in a fearful in a, Yeah, let's go optimistic first. And then I want to to circle back and say who's resistant and who's pessimistic. So who are the optimists? Um, material scientists, uh, chemists, people who have to deal with really complex math um, to do their job. Um, they're seeing a lot of potential in AI to be able to take the, the heavy workload of crunching the numbers and coming up with new molecular structures, for example, to have uh, more effective drugs in medicine. Um, again, material science, right? Like if you're trying to design new polymers with certain... Um, characteristics like heat resistance and tensile strength. Uh, it's a lot of math. It's a lot of stimulation. Um, and AI is pretty good at that stuff. Um, so there's some optimism there. Um, in the creative arts, I do see some real trepidation um, because you're starting to see AI output that is kind of like what you might get from a writer's room that isn't performing at its absolute best. The Hallmark movie people. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I saw a trailer for, I think it might have been a Marvel movie or something. Uh, no, it was a Kong versus Godzilla movie, and it was really obviously just a total rehash of the other films, and it just looked like really lazy storytelling to me. And I thought, well... If that's what the human writer's room is going to do, I mean, you might as well ask ChatGPT because that's very ChatGPT-ish. It's like, well, what has everyone else done in the past? Well, they've just taken this monster and that monster and made them fight, and it's a really long fight, and then one of them wins the end. Um, 
yeah, AI can do that. But, you know, I don't think AI is likely to come up with um, the, the more original, you know, insightful scripts that we see. So if you do it like a distribution curve of creativity, you know, it might, it'll take most of its ideas from the big fat part of the distribution curve, but most creative stuff, um, it's very unlikely to to mine that or to come up with stuff that's as good or better than that. That makes sense. So you've used the word mining and that's just the word that tells us it's the AI is looking at past information that that's mining. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then one more thing common language wise is the word prompt. Yeah. Because I think that's something we're, we're hearing about writing better prompts. Um, but what, what exactly is a prompt? It's a series of words that you stick into the front end of an AI to make it do something. Um, so in a common form, it's a question like, um, you know, how do I fix an oil leak in my car? Right. Um, and it's really going to come up with pretty good answers for that because there's so much information on the internet about that um, that has formed the training data of pretty much all of the large language models. So, you know, all of the big large language models today have basically been trained on big, large chunks of data from the internet. So because the answer to that question has been put on the internet many, many, many times, it'll probably find a very good answer. Um, but if you write something that um, asks a question where the answer isn't that common, um, then suddenly your chances of getting a good answer become very, very small because it can't do true reasoning. That makes sense. And I think one of the opportunities I see, uh, I was actually writing um, a blog about asking better questions to humans. And I realized I'm actually making better prompts for humans, which is the same as better prompts for chat GPT or any of the other AI sources and resources that we use. Uh, and so I think that is a skill. If, if we start to look at what people are going to need, no matter what your work, uh, I think the ability to ask better questions, to, to make prompts that work well, that's going to be something. Yeah. You know? And this is, this really touches on a difference between humans and machines. So in, organizational psychology and organizational culture, which we've both worked in, you know, one of the excellent questions that I was taught to consider is, if you do that, what human experience would you create for other people in your organization? And that's a really good filter to put on your own decisions. Um, but it requires the person being asked the question to actually care about other people's human experiences. So there's this human empathy, there's this notion of, you know, positive and negative experiences that machines really don't have. They can simulate it, but they actually don't have it. They can really simulate it. So I want to talk about um, one AI that I've used, an app 
called Pi. I don't know if you've played with Pi yeah. at all. Um, and Pi is, for anyone who's listening out there, it's an iPhone app. It's free. You talk to Pi. And Pi is programmed to sound much more like a human uh, than, than most of the AIs that I've come across. In fact, when we got into a go-round where Pi wasn't understanding me, after about eight or nine go-rounds, Pi said, we're doing Abbott and Costello here. And I was blown away that somebody had coded that in to make it feel very much like this was a human. And in future episodes, Eric, because I don't want to go way off track today, I would love us to talk about all the different versions out there and really explore how, as a practitioner who's going to be going in and consulting, you're going to figure out which one is the right fit for an organization because you've got individuals inside of an organization, um, some who I actually don't like Pi's sense of humor and anthropomorphization. Um, I prefer something that sounds more like a computer, but I imagine that there's other people that, that prefer Pi. And so figuring out that, um, I'd, I'd love to put that down as something. Let's talk about that next time. Let's, yeah. I mean, can I just say one thing? Just remember that you a prompt, right? You're writing words in your preferred language. But what the machine has to do is turn all of those words into numbers. And all of its training data, it also has to turn all of that stuff into numbers. And then it just performs math to come up with the answer. The answer is the series of words that will most probably satisfy the prompt. You had posted something about that on LinkedIn recently, and it was very clear, and it helped me to understand that in a way that I had not understood it before. So the first thing that comes to my mind, um, because so many people are alarmed about, am I going to be put out of work? Is this putting the mathematicians and the statisticians into, I don't like to say out of work, but are they going to have to learn a new way to work because this is what AI or large language models do better than humans or am uh, I wrong there? I, I think it is going to change the way that they work because it puts a heavier moral load on them in society. So when you're a mathematician working at Google DeepMind and you've been asked to improve, for example, the, the transformer architecture, which is the mathematical way that um, ChatGPT works, for example, um, you've now got to consider that the impact of your work can actually impact things like the medical treatment that sick people get. Um or maybe even the political decisions that lawmakers make for a country. Um, so it hopefully brings a sort of a, a sharp focus and awareness to everyone working in that field that this is not simply just an interesting intellectual problem anymore. This is something that um, has concrete social impacts of great, importance and, and moral implications. Yeah, it's funny, right? We're, we're going from being very specialized to having to be a little bit more of a generalist um, 
because I think that's the thing that separates us from this technology is, is being able to deeply understand the equation, but also understand the trolley problem of an equation, which. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's All right. So, yeah. I mean, the trolley problem is a perfect example, again, of here's the difference between humans and machines. You know, when the, when the human looks at the trolley problem, which I'll, I'll let you explain what that is, but it's basically a moral decision. You know, it's do you kill this person or those people? Yeah, anyone can Google the trolley problem and you'll find out what it is. I'm going to assume that a lot of our audience know and that they can find that out. But how would, I mean, humans wrestle back and forth with it. What yeah. what would be different about the way ChatGPT would look at this? The machine has to turn it into math. And in order for it to make any judgment at all, do I kill one person or five people? But what if the one person is, you know, a Nobel Prize winning scientist working on curing cancer and the five people are convicted murderers? Does that make a difference? Well, it has to turn all of that into math. And all it does is it just optimizes or minimizes a number. So it actually has no concept of good, evil, you know, suffering, social benefit. None of that is in its awareness. Right? It doesn't really have that type of awareness. It just does math. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of so many conversations that we can have coming out of this. And I guess where I want to go to now, because we're going to do this conversing back and forth about your pivot over the next few weeks. Um, and so I know you're closing out at your current role and jumping fully in. And so what I wonder is, from now until the next time we talk, what are you curious about? What are you hoping to do or know by the time we meet again? What are some goals you have? Yeah, so um, one immediate goal I have is to refine my understanding of how I can be useful to the scientists that I'm going to be partnering with. Um, she has an existing business. She already makes money um, being an AI consultant. And I'm, you know, basically going to need to learn from her. Um, I bring some things to the table. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm from the software industry. I, um, I know people in the industry. Um, I know some of the people that she's, uh, she's potentially going to be able to help. So I can make those connections. But I do need to take... Um, a more general understanding of how I help and turn it into specific action plans of how I can help her in the short term. So that's really, you know, very businessy and maybe not so interesting um, to most of your audience. But more generally, what I also want to do pretty quickly is um, I want to understand um, what's the direction of the all of these changes that are happening in the world of AI and big changes happen every week in this industry. Um, where are they leading and what does that mean to people who seek to help business decision makers on how companies use AI? I like that. That's, that's clear. Um, what I would love to do next time is hear what you think the coolest things that have happened between this conversation and the next, because this is fast, right? This this is the thing that I keep saying about humans versus AI. It's speed is like a bike 
on its highest gear and humans <laughs> are often a little bit lower in their gear. And so it's going faster and faster yeah. and we've got to figure out how to keep up. Uh, and so I would love to hear next time, what are the coolest things that have happened between today and a week from now? Uh, and also what is happening that we need to, I don't even think we can put the brakes. We can't put this back in the box, but yeah. where should we be focusing our attention for potential harm? We've seen, we've talked about bias. We've yeah. talked about misdiagnosis and triage, but the end, what else? Because I want to expand our audience's mind. And I also want to encourage people to follow in your footsteps and maybe not to become consultants, but to figure out how am I going to be shifting in the work that I do because of this technology and how do I keep ahead of that curve? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. I mean, as a preview, I think in terms of what we should be concerned about is every time you see a concentration of power or every time you see power becoming more concentrated in the world of AI, it's smart to be worried about that. You've got to ask why is that happening or should it be happening? Um, and then in terms of, you know, where is the next big flash of things going to come from or the next big, you know, landscape changing event, it might be in something that's happening in parallel to the AI software world, which is the quantum computing world. So AI is software, quantum computing is hardware. These are like two children that are destined to get married. Um, and that marriage will, that's the marriage that will be as impactful on the world as the discovery of agriculture or the discovery that we can harness electricity. Um, All right. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up this episode. Uh, we've got so much more to dive into. So I want to thank our audience for tuning in to what's next. And just to remind them that the next chapter of their own story is out there on the horizon. So whether they're ready to leap forward or whether they're just going gently with that current, we're going to have the conversations that might help them to be curious, open-minded and brave as they move forward because what's next is inevitable but enjoying it is all up to you, the individual. So thank you, Eric. And I can't wait to keep chatting. And I invite our audience to join us again next time and hear more about your journey and learn from you. Thanks, Tamara. I really enjoyed it. And well said. <laughs>